This is Swampside Chats, a podcast where communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This episode, in light of recent developments in the housing market, we return to a close reading of Frederick Ingalls. This time, we're looking at the housing question. back we're back 2022 jesus christ yeah it's, will it uh, never end will the train what? of history never stop time yeah i was promised that time would be over by now abolished done away with um, or at the very least like can we get back to the end of history like i just want to play nintendo you know what i mean like yeah let's go back to let's let's go back to let's go back to neoliberalism i miss neoliberalism Ah, oh, things were so simple then. Compared yeah. to whatever the hell this is. Yeah, market bad, government good. Mm. Yeah. It's so nice. Okay, so today we're reading, and we're just going to read this out loud. It's a close reading. I don't know how far we're actually going to get into this. Yeah, uh, I'm excited. We're, we're doing the close reading series. This is when we need to reorient and get our head back on straight. We like to do a close reading of something. And I don't know about you, Jake, but, uh, you know, the post- Biden like burnout blues and subsequent brain scrambling when a bunch of, you know, a grifters that were totally not like at all um, kind of lost the plot. It was sort of a depressing period to be in left media. And like looking at the left really made me wonder why I was doing what I was doing. But the moment that I actually like turned towards developments in our society that seem intractable by you know by the standards of our own society it kind of reminds me why i am here in the first place why i still think on some level communists can be the adults in the room that's why i'm glad we're reading something about the housing market <laughs> yeah we're and like the last time we did this we're turning to uh freddie uncle angel as the marx girls <laughs> called him for constantly giving their family free money frederick Ingalls, it's on the housing question this has been a particularly this is something I've been thinking about a lot because where I live is like one of the if not the hottest housing market in the country right now in a country where the entire housing market is on fire. Mm-hmm. Um like I think I think rents went up here by the last metric like 25% in a year. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I don't have I don't have figures, but yeah, just to get like a hole in the wall in Phoenix right now or or Tempe next to the university and ASU. Forget about it. Like, and we're not talking about like some of the most luxurious places in the world, people. It's just location, location, location. And shit is skyrocketing. Well, and it's fascinating too, because so when my family moved down here, it was like right on the cusp of the last bubble. Mm -hmm. And then like we ended up having a house that was way overpriced. (laughs) Um, And so I think, you know, everybody, like at least in our increasingly like elder generation, uh, it was one of the numerous, like, it feels histrionic to call it a trauma, but it's something that we think about a lot. Yeah. I, I and, think in, it, trauma in terms of something that you can't make sense of and have to reconstruct in retrospect. Like, because when it was happening, 
nothing like it had happened, you know, I don't know, and in our lives at least. And we didn't have the language to talk about it besides, oh, everything's going to shit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, housing is insane right now, but it's been insane for a while. And I've been trying to figure out why. Uh, because I I think in a lot of people, and you see this, here's some conversations and you see this in comment sections or online and so forth. Mm. There seems to be this pervasive sense, not amongst everybody, that this is another bubble and it's going to pop at any moment, right? You go on like real estate YouTube and you'll find a million videos where they're all like, this thing's ready to blow. This is my sense. And I'm not just speaking as like a Marxist here, but as someone who's just observes markets and even without a Marxist lens, you st you're looking for the other shoe to drop. But they've been saying that for years. Like I thought the housing market was crazy three years ago, but it's up. I don't know the exact figure is, but just colloquially it looks like 25 30 it's higher in some places so it's already it's skyrocketed even more since then and i've been going back and forth on this is this a bubble or more terrifying is this just a new paradigm and what shit costs now right um is this the nft of you know housing whatever, whatever. well the problem very, is very dumb. <laughs> we can get into this more later uh and this is maybe the more modern problem the modern monetary problem uh, a lot of this seems to come down to what the Federal Reserve is doing in terms of quantitative easing and using that to backstop crisis. And the question is, to what extent can they do that? This is what I, I haven't quite figured out the answer to this yet. And I don't know if nobody, even, anybody even has the answer. But what I've been asking myself is, to what extent can they perpetually use quantitative easing to prevent a, a liquidity crisis, which would trigger a depression or recession or crisis? Uh, to what extent could they continue to do that indefinitely? And we've seen massive inflation over the last decade in asset prices. Um, and to what extent, uh, I'll get to my thoughts on this later, I guess. We should probably maybe start with the basics. Uh, sure, sure. But uh, I don't know, just briefly respond to that. Two words, moral hazard. What the Federal Reserve is doing as a counter argument to your fear um, creates the same kind of moral hazard that you see in 2007, 2008. The only difference is the international clientele that they're looking at. So next time, it's not just going to be an American housing crisis that cascades out. It's that into a financial crisis, et cetera. It's going to be a global housing crisis. <laughs> well, and here's the thing. On some level, monetarily, the United States has been able, through being the global like currency of exchange, has been able to offload some of its like inflation and other problems to other countries you and can so say it you, you can say dirty fiat it's okay <laughs> yeah uh so that shit will roll downhill to a certain extent this is probably a fool's errand on my part trying to game this out but i'm trying to figure out what i should do in terms of my living situation i feel oh, like yeah. if, if i could basically capture like the world spirit here and figure it out i'll be able to like beat the market and make the right decisions <laughs> listen i this is what i think you want to like move to some back asswards country like Spain or Portugal or, you know, some European fucking country where, you know, they, they barely know civilization and, you know, they, you get nice purchasing power for the dollar. You just keep your, keep your Patreon fat. You know, we really, we, we go all out on the next perks tier mm -hmm. thing. You know, we yeah. start drawing Lola Bunny's butthole or whatever. Yeah. Like maybe whatever. get NFTs. Yeah. Yeah. Get into NFTs. Like really, really milk it. Because every American dollar in, you know, in a lot of places in Europe, like, right, the euro exchange rate, I understand the euro is technically stronger, 
but purchasing power, baby, baby, just like just soak it up. Now, well, yeah. The thing is, though, I wonder. I feel like a lot of boomers are going to be doing the expat retirement thing as the ship goes down here. Do you, do you get that sense? I mean, I'm trying to get my boomer parent to do that because it seems like the most rational thing to do because getting some Florida coast right now seems fucking very stupid. It seems very yeah. like just cost benefit analysis. Yeah. Very stupid. Yes. Okay. Anyway, first world problems aside, we should get back to the, the basic, the housing question because there is obviously, I think we have uh, besides uh panic at having to like survive you know this insane situation yeah uh broader broader class considerations at play here that Ingalls taps into and what's fascinating about reading this i found is how many parallels there are which is in a way reassuring but also kind of terrifying um yeah peering into the deep structure of capital and its housing situation is you know it's a cathonic experience but also I think he brings up a number of issues that you see with people who place housing more towards the center of their analysis. And it is very tempting to do that when it becomes like a central pressing issue. Yeah. It's, it's literally natural. Like (laughs) we, we want shelter. So something, you know, a system as complex as capitalism that, makes this thing that you kind of need to really like to survive certain environments, certainly like where I'm at in Phoenix, like exposure is the way people die. So the idea that that kind of use value, that primary use value that everybody needs isn't the basis of an analysis. Yeah. That's weird, right? So there's, there's three sections to this. Uh, We're going to basically try and cover reading the first section and later we'll and a subsequent episode we'll talk about the second section and i'll touch a little bit on the third the first section is called how Proudhon solves the housing question uh, part two is called how the bourgeoisie solves the housing question and part three is supplement on Proudhon and the housing question although he talks a lot in part one although he talks a lot about Proudhon, he's really responding to somebody else he's responding to something that's written by a guy named Mulberger uh, for a german audience and he's basically picking apart what he sees as like Protonist influence in in the socialist movement, particularly around the question of housing. So I'm just gonna I'm gonna read I think the first three paragraphs here, and then we can stop and talk a little bit about what we just read. Okay, part one: How Proudhon solves the housing question. In number ten and the following numbers of the Volkstat appears a series of six articles on the housing question. These articles are only worthy of attention because, apart from some long-forgotten would-be literary writings of the 40s, they are the first attempt to transplant the Prudentist school to Germany. This represents such an enormous step backward in comparison with the whole course of development in German socialism, which delivered a decisive blow, particularly to the Prudentist ideas, as far back as 25 years ago. That it is worth answering it immediately. The so-called housing shortage, which plays such a great role in the press nowadays, does that consist in the fact that the working class generally lives in bad, overcrowded, and unhealthy dwellings? This shortage is not something particular to the present. It is not even one of the sufferings particular to the modern proletariat in contradistinction to all earlier oppressed classes. On the contrary, all oppressed classes in all periods suffered more or less uniformly from it. In order to make an end of this housing shortage, there is only one means, to abolish altogether the exploitation and oppression of the working class by the ruling class. What is meant today by housing shortage is the peculiar intensification of the bad housing conditions of the workers as a result of the sudden rush of population to 
the big towns, a colossal increase in rents, a still further aggravation of overcrowding in the individual houses, and for some, the impossibility of finding a place to live in at all. This housing shortage gets talked of so much only because it does not limit itself to the working class, but has affected the petty bourgeoisie also. The housing shortage from which the workers and part of the petty bourgeoisie suffer in our modern big cities is one of the numerous, smaller, secondary evils which result from the present-day capitalist mode of production. It is not at all a direct result of the exploitation of the worker as a worker by the capitalists. This exploitation is the basic evil which the social revolution strives to abolish by abolishing the capitalist mode of production. The cornerstone of the capitalist mode of production is, however, the fact that our present social order enables the capitalists to buy the labor power of the worker at its value, but to extract from it much more than its value by making the worker work longer than is necessary in order to reproduce the price paid for the labor power. The surplus value produced in this fashion is divided amongst the whole class of capitalists and landowners together with their paid servants, from the Pope and the Kaiser, right down to the night watchmen and below. We are not concerned here as to how this distribution comes about, but this much is certain, that all those who do not work can live only from fragments of this surplus value which reach them in one way or another. See Marx's Capital, where this was worked out for the first time. So... What he's doing here, basically, is he is, in addition to recapitulating some basic value, value theory 101 stuff, he is pointing out that the housing question or the, the relationship between landlord and tenant is not the essential antagonism of capitalism or the primary contradiction or whatever. And that this problem of dear price for land in high-level high population centers has existed uh, for much of human civilization up to that point. Yeah, I just want to uh, draw some attention to the language using here, because, yeah, you're kind of using the Maoist-like framing, you know, primary contradiction, secondary contradiction. Probably actually a really fair way to sum this up. Uh, Engels uses some uncharacteristically, but I don't know. I don't want to say uncharacteristically. Characteristic, but maybe inconsistent with some other writings. Some, you know, moralistic language here about, you know, what is the pr the primary evil? The secondary, smaller secondary evil. When you frame it as contradiction, because I think that's the actual causal claim that's being made here, and that the more the moral implication is actually probably kind of unhelpful, maybe a bit trollish. This is a challenging thesis, and you know something that if you do read Marx's Capital and get to what God, what is it? Volume three. Yeah, that's where there ground rent comes in. But that's mostly about agriculture, if I remember correctly. Yeah, but if you're if you love abstraction you can abstract a land rent model and an agricultural like kind of model to all kinds of rents and i i can't really think about how to make sense of the modern economy without doing a fair amount of that yeah it's a it's it's one of the more obscure sections of his work but it's it's also a huge area that i don't i think in the original plan for it it was supposed to be like a wider section but he didn't live to finish it yeah uh, anyway he's uh, too busy shit posting too busy shitposting, uh, you know, in the form of the telegraph and letters back then. Also, you know, interested in like Russian peasant communes. Anyway, um, whatever good that's going to do. <laughs> the dis okay, G going on the distribution of this surplus value produced by the working class and take it from it without payment among the non-working classes proceeds amid an extremely edifying squabblings and mutual swindling. 
Insofar as this distribution takes place by means of buying and selling, one of its chief methods is the cheating of the buyer by the seller, and in retail trade, particularly in the big towns. This has become an absolute condition of existence for the sellers. When, however, the worker is cheated by his grocer or his baker, either in regard to the price or quality of the commodity, this does not happen to him in his specific capacity as a worker. On the contrary, as soon as a certain average level of cheating has become the social rule in any place, it must in the long run be leveled out by a corresponding increase in wages. The worker appears before the small shopkeeper as a buyer, that is, as the owner of money or credit, and hence not at all in his capacity as a worker, that is, as a seller of labor power. The cheating may hit him, and the poorer class as a whole, harder than it hits the richer social classes, but it is not an evil which hits him exclusively or is particular to his class. And it is just the same with the housing shortage. The growth of the modern cities gives the land in certain areas, particularly in those which are centrally situated, an artificial and often colossally increasing value. The buildings erected in these areas depresses its value instead of increasing it because they no longer correspond to the changed circumstances. They are pulled down and replaced by others. This takes place, above all, with workers' houses which are situated centrally and whose rents, even with the greatest overcrowding, can never or very slowly increase above a certain maximum. They are pulled down and instead shops, warehouses, and public buildings are erected. Through its Haussmann in Paris, Bonapartism exploited this tendency tremendously for swindling and private enrichment. But the spirit of Haussmann has also been abroad in London, Manchester, Liverpool, and seems to feel itself just as much home in Berlin and Vienna. The result is that the workers are forced out of the center of towns beyond the outskirts, that workers' dwellings and small dwellings in general become rare and expensive and often altogether unobtainable. For under these circumstances, the building industry, which has offered a much better field for speculation by more expensive houses, builds workers' dwellings only by way of exception. Reading this just reminds me of the whole thing about how the best critique of neoliberalism is that there's nothing neo about it and that it really is just a return to basically the old way of doing business because we're coming out of a period where there was in the United States some investment in public housing um, through the pro pros uh, through the GI Bill and project of suburbanization, some effort to make sure that there was like adequate housing provision for the working class in the United States. And it seems like the situation we're entering is basically just back to the old, you know, Fuck it, fuck it, I gotta go back to the old me, where it's left up to the market. And, you know, in fact, having fewer housing, having less housing for the working class is actually in many ways financially advantageous because you've created like an artificial scarcity in the market that you can do rent seeking and speculation for, you know. The, the only significant difference between old liberalism and new liberalism in, in this sense of the word, that the modern state's powers to arrange the economy has expanded so, so vastly. And that was felt out during a period, uh, Keynesian, Charles, whatever, like reinvestment uh, and, you know, statification of, and during that period, the capacities of the modern state were so far built up that even though, look, the state's basically doing what a capitalist state does, it arranges the market situation. That shit ain't, is not natural. It's not natural, right? Like it doesn't, um, that doesn't spring out of our nature. We don't just make we don't just make markets. That's you know that's the great that's the you know great lie of uh, old school political economy. Like um, <laughs> it doesn't just like you know unfold from us, right? That you know essentially this, these things need to be arranged, and they're arranged by political actors. Like like they're arranged by political actors. They're also just arranged by like I don't know economic actors that have benefited in a way and can shoehorn themselves into positions of power. Let me read the footnote that you skipped. 
Hausmann was a prefect of the Sina department in the years 1853 through 70 and carried on big building alterations in Paris in the interests of the bourgeoisie. He did not fail to profit himself also. This reminds me of the tendency in progressive city politics for people that are actually known for public expenditure, you know, even during like the golden age of, you know, Keynesian reinvestment that were also highly corrupt and bought off <laughs> and how those things, there's certainly not in fundamental tension. Well, what's insane now is how like things are so broken down in some ways, like we can almost look back at corruption <laughs> with a certain degree of nostalgia. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. You know, yeah. It sounds nice. Oh, wow. They're okay. Oh, he got a chunk of change. Well, good for him. They were setting up, they're trying to set up a community. What's that like? Yeah, it's like, hey, if I vote for Democrats, I'm going to get, like, a turkey on Christmas. Like, fuck, yeah, dude, like, I'm getting something, you know what I mean? Where's yeah. my turkey, Mr. Biden? Yeah, really. It's been, I guess it's just been Republicans cutting us checks in the last, like, 20 years. Bush did it once. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, the, the only Bush people remember. And yeah. Orange man. 2022, post, post left swamp side. Let's go. I don't know. I'm just saying it's, that's <laughs> fucking weird. Well, honestly, like that's where the money is, right? Like, yeah. uh, no, this no, this is this is a weird nihilist hole for left media. Bernie was was kind of like the big executive actor, and in political media, that stuff really matters. And when he got folded into a, an administration that's d- destined to be disastrously unpopular, that's a pretty crushing moment for all. All of us, even if we weren't, even if, you know, we quote, had no illusions about it, you know, because that's kind of like, I don't know, it's, it's like, uh, you know, you don't have the ultra left without Leninism or something, right? Well, without that kind of shit, you know, where, what frame of reference are we even talking to? A lot of people that are listening right now, you know, many of them, if they're younger, have been peeled off stuff that was at least sort of peripheral to Bernie, if, if not literally just working for Bernie. Back to housing. This housing shortage certainly hits the worker harder than it hits any more prosperous class. But it is just as little an evil which burdens the working class exclusively as the cheating of the shopkeeper. And it must, as far as the working class is concerned, when it reaches a certain level and attains a certain permanency, similarly find a certain economic adjustment. Okay, so this is where he starts to get to Pradhan. It is with just such sufferings as these that the working class endures in common with other classes, and particularly the petty bourgeoisie, that petty bourgeois socialism to which Proudhon belongs, prefers to occupy itself. And thus, it is not at all accidental that our German Proudhonist, Proudhonist, I guess I should be saying, whatever, our German Proudhonist <laughs> occupies himself chiefly with the housing question, which, as we have seen, is by no means exclusively a working class question, and that, on the contrary, he declares it to be true, exclusively working-class question. He quotes Mulberger. As the wage worker in relation to the capitalist, so the tenant in relation to the house owner, end quote. That is totally untrue. It's false. No way. Not this time. No. It's totally made up. <laughs> and he elaborates. In the housing question, we have two parties confronting each other, the tenant and the landlord or house owner. The former, which is to purchase from the latter the temporary use of a dwelling. He has money or credit, even if he has to buy his credit from the house owner himself at a usurious price in addition to the rent. It is a simple commodity sale. It's not an operation between proletarian and bourgeois, between worker and capitalist. The tenant, even if he is a worker, appears as a man with money. 
He must have already sold his own particular commodity, his labor power, in order to appear with the proceeds as the buyer of the use of a dwelling. Or he must be in a position to give a guarantee of the impending sale of his labor power. The particular results which attend the sale of labor power to the capitalist are completely absent here. The capitalist causes causes the purchased labor power firstly to produce its own value and secondly to produce a surplus value which remains in his hands for the time being, subject to its distribution among the capitalist classes. In this case, therefore, an extra value is produced. The total sum of the existing value is increased. In the rent transaction, the situation is quite different. No matter how much the landlord may overreach the tenant, it is only a transfer of already existing, previously produced value. And the total sum of values possessed by the landlord and the tenant together remains the same as it was before. The worker is always cheated as a part of the product of his labor, whether that labor is paid for by the capitalist below, above, or at its value. Basically, what he's reinforcing here is that what makes capitalism unique and historically dynamic is that through the production of surplus value, it's able to increase the efficiency of labor in order to like expand the total value produced by the society generally. The rental relation does not do this. And this is partly why, you know, like rent seeking behaviors are so, I think, Subject to like an increased level of moralism that people feel like throughout this, as we go on, he's going to really pillory Proudhon for his uh, very moralistic sentiments uh, towards this arrangement. But I think that, well, maybe in terms of formulating an intellectual framework to understand it, that is maybe not helpful. But uh, in terms of personal disposition, like you know, it's, 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 being a parasite is like just genuinely. Uh, Disgusting to people for good reason. Well, it's... I, I, I hate to reduce this to evolutionary survival strategy, but it's not hard to see where having some kind of revulsion towards things that suck you dry uh, <laughs> is, is, you know... Well, it's evolu- bad, but... It's, it's, yeah, it's that, you know... How, is, how would that not be evolutionary advantageous? Like, it's one of the major survival strategies in evolutionary biology is, is parasitism. Um, it's different than symbiosis where, you know, everyone's getting like a nice sweet deal out of it, even though it's kind of weird codependent, maybe, um, that, you know, parasitism is like, uh, it runs so deep in nature. It's disturbing. And so, yeah, if you really want to weird yourself out, you know, uh, and disturb yourself, there's lots of interesting like stuff in the animal kingdom and with like fungus and bullshit that is, uh, I don't know. There's a lot of parasitic organisms and, it's yeah, uh, uh, just 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 to put it bluntly, like there's a reason that this drives a lot of reactionary anti anti rent politics. And this this isn't to say that there isn't like a class dimension to rents and rent seeking, and that it doesn't give one like a I don't know at least a a a different kind of relation of production than the proletarian. You know, like it's it's probably probably worth noticing how it's different and but that doesn't you know preclude that like low low rent kind of like in other markets like i don't know podcasters let's say um in other rent markets like if you're low rent enough like what do you really have to lose but one thing that's interesting too in this in this next section like there's going to be some talking points that Ingalls will go through here that sound like something like pulled off of like a landlord group on Facebook or like those memes where they try and defend themselves. <laughs> uh, so this, this will be fun. I love this shit. 
The tenant, on the other hand, is cheated only when he's compelled to pay for the dwelling above its value. It is, therefore, a complete misrepresentation of the relationship between landlord and tenant to attempt to make it equivalent to the relation between worker and capitalist. On the contrary, we are dealing here with a quite ordinary commodity transaction between two citizens, and this transaction proceeds according to the economic laws which govern the sale of commodities in general, and in particular, the sale of the commodity, land property. The building and maintenance costs of the house, or the part of the house in question, enters first of all into the calculation. The land value, determined by the more or less favorable situation of the house, comes next. The state of the relation between supply and demand existing at the moment is finally decisive. This simple economic relation expresses itself in the mind of our prudence as follows. Quote, the house, once it has been built, serves as a perpetual legal title to a definite fraction of social labor, although the real value of the house has already long ago been paid out in the form of rent to the owner. Thus, it comes about that a house that, for instance, was built 50 years ago during this period covers the original cost two, three, five, ten, or more times over in its rent yield. End quote. Here we have at once the whole Proudhon. Firstly, it is forgotten that the rent must not only pay the interest on the building costs, but it must also cover repairs and the average sum of bad debts, unpaid rents, as well as the occasional periods when the house is untenanted, and finally pay off in an annual sum the building capital which has been invested in a house which is perishable and which in time becomes uninhabitable and worthless. Finally, it is forgotten that the rent must also pay interest on the increased value of the land upon which the building is erected, and that therefore a part of it consists of ground rent. Our prudentness immediately declares, it is true, that this increase of value does not equitably belong to the landowner, since it comes about and without his cooperation, but to society as a whole. However, he overlooks the fact that he is in reality demanding the abolition of landed property, a point which would lead us too far if we went into it here. And finally, he overlooks the fact that the whole transaction is not one of buying the house from the owner, but of buying its use for a certain time. Proudhon, who never bothered himself about the real and actual conditions under which any economic phenomenon occurs, is, act, is naturally unable to explain how the original cost of a house is paid back ten times over in the course of fifty years in the form of rent. Instead of examining and establishing that this not at all difficult question economically, and discovering whether it is really in contradiction to economic laws, and, if so, how, Proudhon rescues himself by a bold leap from economics into legal talk. The house, quote, the house, once it has been built, serves as a perpetual legal title, end quote, to a certain annual payment. How this comes about, how the house becomes a legal title, on this Proudhon is silent. And yet, that is just what he should have explained. Had he examined it, he would have found that not all the legal titles in the world, no matter how perpetual, could give the house a power of obtaining its cost price back ten times over in the course of fifty years in the form of rent, but that only economic conditions, which may have a social recognition in the form of legal titles, can accomplish that. And with this, he would again be as far as the start. Okay. Now, lots to unpack there. I will say, though, um, it's kind of interesting, like the... The error that like the protonist makes um, with regards to this, I also feel like a lot of more entrepreneurial landlords mm -hmm. and like landlord TikTok types yeah. make these days as well, which causes them to go into the market in the first place. You know, I've, I don't know if you know who Robert Kiyosaki is. I, I do not. But based on I think I know where this is going. So he's the author of uh, the book Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Oh. I feel like he's done like more social damage. And perhaps like any other like self-help guru in the country because like he and I've used to see him, I swear to God, advertise like on PBS, like during their pledge drives, right? Mm -hmm. Like this no. guy was being pushed no. as like a legitimate economic guru. He was the big proponent, the big guy who pushed the idea of like passive income, right? 
And so, and that's what you see, like so many like these entrepreneurial landlord types, you know, the, whether it's the Airbnb types or the guys who are like take like leveraging, uh, you know, a little bit of QE that's floating around to like buy a few houses and let them out to people, and you know, basically running like suburban slums. Um, right. Those people all want to think of it as like passive income, right? Mm-hmm. And and so they are what they do is they they don't actually fully consider you know everything that actually goes into these things and why typically um you know you don't really i mean you either have like landlords that are like really small or you have like larger ones at economies of scale where you can make a profit you know what i mean and a lot of that is also help what's helping to tip the market and make it so crazy right now i just thought it was an interesting parallel that like Perdon is not the only one who is not guilty who is guilty of you know being like what you just you pay the house off and everything after after you pay the house off that's false oh profit baby yeah and you know for whatever i don't know sometimes it's annoying to read angles when he's like dismissing rent seeking relations around housing as you know a secondary evil or something uh but like you have to appreciate the causal point and i i always appreciate that angles this is like kind of a nice primer for marxist theories of rent which aren't well understood even by people I don't know. I was in a critical theory class last semester that I, I had to take a critical. This is kind of funny. I had to take critical theory class because in order to do research in a fucking math program. But anyway, <laughs> I was either that or, or, take, gotcha. or take the history of like good, great white men, you know, civilization class. And I was like, nah, I've taken enough of those. Um, but but uh, yeah, I mean, that that professor did no shit about Marx's theory of rent. <laughs> and, you know. He was teaching Marx, so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, you just need to know, like, you really just need to read Gramsci, you know. That's all you really need. <laughs> yeah, but, like, I, no, 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 but like, how how important would it be to, to you know, have a, a good, pol- like, a good politics around, like, rent markets, like, right now? Like, if you're, if you think, I don't know, if you think political analysis grows out of the barrel of a, I don't know, stock ticker or whatever. Like, if if you think that economics, like, is really politically important and, you know, you should pay attention to it, like, that, yeah, like, having a, just having something that even fucking makes sense on paper, let alone being able to communicate it to others like this pamphlet is doing, it would be good. Okay. So, he's going to, he's going to beat up on Proudhon some more. Uh, The whole Proudhon is teaching, and it's funny, too, because, like, he's, this other guy, I don't even, I don't even know this other guy who's a prudonist, really. <laughs> like, no, just no, like, no. He just, sound, like, you just sound like him, dude. So you must love this guy. Like, yeah. So he, he's, he just he's goes immediately. Shit. It's like, okay, yeah, okay. This guy sucks, but l- let me, let me use this, let me use this guy as a gateway to like spend like fifteen paragraphs talking about how much this French socialist <laughs> from twenty five years ago is a piece of shit. All right. Um, the whole prudonist teaching rests on the savings leap from economic reality into legal phraseology. Phraseology, I guess you'd say. Anyway, every time our good Proudhon loses the economic hang of things, and this happens to him with every serious problem, he takes refuge in the sphere of law and appeals to eternal justice. All right, it's a long quote. Uh, it's from Marx. Proudhon begins by taking his ideal of justice or of justice eternelle from the ju- from the juridical relations that correspond to the production of commodities. Thereby, it may be noted, he proves to the consolation of all good citizens that the production of commodities is a form of production as everlasting as justice. He then turns around and seeks to reform the actual production of commodities and the actual legal system corresponding thereto in accordance with this ideal. 
What opinion should we have of a chemist who, instead of studying the actual laws of the molecular changes in the composition and decomposition of matter, and on that foundation solving definite problems, claimed to regulate the composition and decomposition of matter by means of the, quote, eternal ideas of, quote, naturalite and a finite, and affinite? Anyway, um, do we really know any more about usury when no. we say it contradicts Sorry. justice Na- kernel? Uh, nat- naturalite and affinite. It's French. Thank you. Okay. Uh, sorry. Uh, uh, it contradicts justice carnel, equite eternel, mutua. God damn, I hate the French. I hate, the, I, hate the, I hate this language. Everyone says it's beautiful. It's awful. <laughs> Mutualite eternel and other verite internal. Maybe you should have read this paragraph. And the fathers yeah. of the church did when they <laughs> when the did when they said it was it was incompatible with. Yeah, fuck the fuck. The, you you were going with this, anyway. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Father's Church, when they said it was incompatible with Gracia Eternal, Foi Eternal, and La Volante Eternal de Dieu. God help you if I'm the best French speaker in a room. Yeah, I swear. I, I used to be like, so this Baudrillard? Who's this Baudrillard guy? <laughs> no, it wasn't right. much different. Um, I remember I was in an LSAT class when I was trying to be a lawyer, and I was reading an example of something that said chalet like five times, but I said chalet. <laughs> and people just looked at me, and I was like, you know, I'm a Marxist in this class. I'm like, what? I don't speak French. I didn't let, I didn't let anyone know I was a Marxist, but they probably thought I was uh, right wing. Our Prodonis our does not fare any better than his lord and master. So I guess this is the current guy. Um, the rent agreement is one of the thousand exchanges which are as necessary in the modern societies as the circulation of blood in the bodies of animals. Naturally, it would be in the interest of the society if all these exchanges were pervaded by a conception of justice. Okay, maybe as a put on us. Conception of justice, that is to say, if they took place according to the strict demands of justice. In a word, the economic life of society must, as Proudhon says, raise itself to the heights of economic justice. In reality, as we know, exactly the opposite takes place. End quote. It is credible that five years after Marx had characterized Proudhonism so sum- summarily and convincingly, precisely from this decisive angle, it should be possible to print such confused stuff in the German language. What does this rigmarole mean? Nothing more than that the practical effects of the economic laws which govern present-day society run contrary to the author's sense of justice, and that he cherishes the pious wish that the, that the affair might be so arranged that this would then no longer be the case. But if toads had tails, they would no longer be toads. Is then the capitalist mode of production not, quote, pervaded by a conception of justice, namely that its own right to exploit the workers? And if the author tells us that that is not his idea of justice. Are we one step further? Right. So a lot of, yeah. So he's basically laying into the idea of essentially the, the substantially moralistic bent of Proudhon's reasoning. It prevents him from seeing, you know, how the system on its own terms actually functions and inhibits his ability to offer any prescriptions for what to do about it otherwise. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure if you, you know, tried to do mutual aid groups with like, um, you know, housing activists you know you'd run into some you know super moralistic anarchists right or liberals or whatever and i don't know it's kind of understandable when you get to know landlords like (laughs) you get to learn what landlords are like because this is something that uh, anarchists and maoists have in common is you know prioritizing the how like questions of housing questions of uh, land reform just because they're you know, more friendly to peasant class interests. And, you know, having a multifaceted version of Marxism that's adaptable to contemporary class society, it's also a, a good thing to have in our back pocket. But let us go back to the housing question. 
Our Podonis now gives his conception of justice free reign and treats us to the following moving declamation. We do not quote, we do not hesitate to assert that there is no more terrible mockery of the whole culture of our lauded century than the fact that in the big cities, 90% and more of the population have no place that they can call their own. The real key point of moral and family existence, hearth and home, is being swept away by the social whirlpool. In this respect, we are far below the savages. The troglodyte has his cave. The Australian Aborigine has his clay hut. The Indian has his own hearth. The modern proletarian is practically suspended in midair, uh, end quote, etc. Um, in this Jeremiad, we have Prodonism in its whole reactionary form. Yes. In, in order to create the modern revolutionary class, the proletariat, it was absolutely necessary to cut the umbilical cord, which is still bound the worker of the past of the land. The handweaver who has his little house, garden, and field along with his loom was a quiet, contented man in all godliness and respectability, despite all misery and despite all political pressure. He doffed his cap to the rich, to the priests, and to the officials of the, of the state, and inwardly was altogether a slave. It is precisely modern, large-scale industry which has turned the worker, formerly trained, chained to the land, into a completely propertyless proletarian, liberated from all traditional fetters and free as a jailbird, as jail in brackets, and then bird. It is precisely this economic revolution which has created the sole conditions under which the exploitation of the working class in its final form and the capitalist mode of production can be overthrown. And now comes this tearful prudenist and bewails the driving of the workers from hearth and home as though it were a great retrogression instead of being the very first condition of their intellectual emancipation. Ooh, that's, uh, that's spicy. We we were talking about Marx's interests in the, you know, Russian communes and the mayors, right? Like, things would have went, like, a much different way in Russia if that would, that path was pursued instead of the kind of version of, of Marxism you got through Plekhanov and, like, the, you know, Russian Marxist tradition that that really took Engels pretty seriously right here. Like, oh, you, you have to rip them all. You have to rip them from their, like you know, their shitty old thing where they had land because they're just going to be small-minded, you know? They haven't been, like, all mixed up in the city, which is going to be totally awesome and totally not turn people into extremely narrow people also. Like, uh, there's there's kind of a lot of assumptions here that, you know, I, I, find, I find it hard to... I think it's part of the problem with, you know, historical materialism, like like before even getting like on its own terms before really questioning the framework something that the the bolsheviks kind of struggled with by coming up with you know the the permanent revolution theory but they didn't really <laughs> connect the possibility that like leaving existing forms of property in like working with existing forms of property instead of tearing them up as if they were capitalism would be the way to handle that. Well, he has right to critique. There, are, there's always whenever confronted with like modernity and like the disintegrating force of capitalism. There's always seems to be a certain like backward looking tendency. I've I've talked about this before. Yeah. Like the modern ver the modern the modern version of this is people who really idealize like the New Deal and the post war labor peace. Um, you know, we used to be a country, a proper country. You know that stuff. Um. And it's always, it's always mistaken, but it's understandable given, I mean, I think the basic impulse would be like, well, we basically have to like pass through this and try to be, take the benefits of modernity and try to 
be forward thinking and try and forge a new humanity uh, beyond maybe like the conceptions that had been formed by like settled agricultural existence up to this point. You know, there's, all, there's almost something Nietzschean about it. No, there there is. The, the, it's kind of building something on the ashes of the old, not, you know, like not continuing those traditions, but be kind of ruthlessly dispensing with the ones that don't like make sense, which it's kind of funny that you say Snishan, because what I was thinking is that there's a, a, a smack of the Christianity of the Hegelian variety, a very heterodox Christianity, but it's essentially saying, look, it's only through this fucking huge, terrible thing that totally takes something from you that you can get it restored at a higher level. You know, like, if you don't go through that thing, then you never have the opportunity to get it restored at a higher level. That's a, that's a very, like, um, that's a long-term kind of Western civilization bias. It technically predates Christianity, but it's part of Nietzsche's critique of Christianity. Um, it is that, like, that way of thinking. It's a good way of thinking if you've already experienced the trauma, but the problem in Marxist theory is that some Marxists we're like, oh, okay. Well, what do we do to this Siberian tribe? Well, Engel says, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> and, you know, we need to proletarianize the world. Otherwise, they'll never get to this higher form of freedom. Like, right. If you adopt this very, like, yeah, linear stagist approach to these things, well, yeah, that's something that Marx and Engels are always much better. I mean, especially Marx was always much better at recognizing the sort of, uh, be more contingent and like niche nature of class right. politics yeah. within a national context. Yeah. Marx was okay. better at that. Um, okay. So we, we got a lot more of this subject uh, in these subsequent paragraphs here. Um, okay. So 27 years ago, I described in the condition of the working class in England, the main features of just this process of driving the workers from hearth and home as it took place in the 18th century in England. The infamies of which the landowners and factory owners were guilty in so doing, and the deleterious effects, material and moral, which this expulsion inevitably had on the workers concerned in the first place, are there also described as they deserve. But could it enter my head to regard this, which was in the circumstances an absolutely necessary historical process of development, as a retrogression, quote, below the savages? Impossible. The English proletarian of 1872 is in, on an infinitely higher level than the rural weaver of 1772 with his hearth and home. Will the troglodyte in his cave, the Austrian aborigine in his clay hut, aborigine. And the with his hearth, aborigine, aborigine sorry, yeah. sorry. Uh, and the Indian with his hearth ever accomplish a June insurrection in a Paris commune? <laughs> I mean, the answer is, you know, yeah, like they're kind of much freer to do that in those cultures. <laughs> like, because they don't have, I don't know, like, sure, like, the Paris Commune is sweet, but like it does that doesn't happen all the time. That's kind of the exception, not the rule in capitalism and long term. And you know what? In those in those societies, like those people are much freer to do like egalitarian kind of checks on their like tribal societies. Like, yeah, that, that's a funny. I don't know. There's something I, I that's something kind of funny about that to me, where it's like. Yeah, yeah. Man, like, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, I love. I, I, <laughs> no, no, no. Elaborate, I, please. I, I don't know. I, I love just how like enthusiastic he is about it. You know what I mean? Like, look what we did, man. Like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but yeah, but like that's you know, so it's okay. On the one hand, there's it's only because we suffered this great trauma that we were able to accomplish such incredible things. 
but it's being <laughs> held over the head of the aborigines of Australia and the Indians. Uh, yeah, because they they don't have proletarian sigma grind set. You know, they don't know how to take they don't know how to take their losses into lessons and turn their suffering into gains. <laughs> you get what I'm saying about the Christian structure of that argument, right? Like, yeah. Okay. That the situation of the workers has, in general, become materially worse since the introduction of capitalist production on a large scale is doubted only by the bourgeoisie, but should therefore look backward longingly, yes, longingly, to the likewise very meager flesh pots of Egypt, to rural small-scale industry, which produced only servile souls, or to the savage, quote, the quote, savages, he puts savages in quotes, on the contrary, only the proletariat created by modern large-scale industry, liberated from all Inherited fetters, including those which it chained it to the land and driven in herds into the big towns, is in a position to accomplish the great social transformation which will put an end to all class exploitation and all class rule. The old rural hand weavers with hearth and home would never have been able to do it. They would never have been able to conceive of such an idea, much less able to desire to carry it out. For Padon, on the other hand, the whole industrial revolution of the last hundred years, the introduction of steam power and large-scale factory production, which substituted machinery for hand labor and increased the productivity of labor a thousandfold, is a highly repugnant occurrence, something which really ought never to have taken place. The petty bourgeois Padon demands a world in which each person turns out a separate and independent product that is immediately consumable and exchangeable in the market. Then, as long as each person only receives back the full value of his labor in the form of another product, quote, eternal justice, end quote, is satisfied and the best possible world is created. But this best possible world of Perdon has already been nipped in the bud and trodden underfoot by the advance of industrial development, which has long ago destroyed the individual labor in all the big branches of industries and which is destroying it daily more and more in the smaller and smallest branches, has set social labor supported by machinery and the harness forces of nature in its place. And to its finished product, immediately exchangeable or consumable, is the joint work of many individuals through whose hands it has to pass. And it is precisely this industrial revolution which has raised the productive power of, of human labor to such a high level that, for the first time in the history of humanity, the possibility exists, given a rational division of labor among all, to produce not only enough for the plentiful consumption of all members of society and for an abundant reserve fund, but also to leave each individual sufficient leisure so that what is really worth preserving in historically inherited culture, science, art, human relations, is not only preserved, but converted from a monopoly of the ruling class into the common property of the whole of society and further developed. And here is the decisive point. As soon as the productive power of human labor has developed to this height, every excuse disappears for the existence of a ruling class. Was that the final reason with which class differences were defended always? There must be a class which needs not plague itself with the production of its daily subsistence in order that it may have time to look after the intellectual work of society? This talk which up to now has had its great historical justification, has been cut off at the root once and for all by the daily industrial revolution of the last hundred years. The existence of a ruling class, which is becoming daily more and more a hindrance to the development of industrial productive power, and equally so to science, art, and especially cultural human relations, there were never greater bores than our modern bourgeois. So that's a little bit of, uh, little bit of uh, soapboxing from Ingalls there. Which is very well put. Although I will say, like, I, fa I would... I would I would put our modern bourgeois toe to toe uh, with his. Yeah, our, except like our our modern bourgeois are like, you know, like epic bacon or you know, like they're like they're tweeting. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, they're not even boars. They're little piglets, little piggies. Well, I, yeah, there's there's kind of some 
it's kind of a lot to talk about here. I don't know. Like, do I buy that there's a higher level of human freedom that's opened up because of this crazy productive thing? Yes, totally. Like, I think it's possible to construct that without the fucking awful colonialism from before. Um, on the other hand, like, when people say something like, the whole industrial revolution of the last hundred years is something which really ought never to have taken place. You know, where have we heard that lately? Um, mm-hmm. You know, that's no. I, w- I was thinking about that. Not just not just like a you know in radical ecology, but is a very common Marxist viewpoint at this at this point. I think it's probably best stated by the analytical. One of the guy, one of the analytical Marxist guys that wasn't a Marxist at all. He was just like a Kant scholar that was interested in the project. But the more he got into it, it seemed like the more black pilled that he got to the point where there's this great interview with him where the you know talking about Kant and Fichte and Marx comes up, and the interviewer's like, "Well, what do you think? What do you think like Marx got wrong about capitalism?" He basically says Marx thought capitalism. He he thought it was too good, like <laughs> essentially that like it's more or less says in a really eloquent way what was you know stated as the as the thesis that he's attacking that you know capitalism actually is stain on history. It's like one of the most awful things that's ever happened. All this all these fantasies about it leading to a higher form of freedom are, are destructive because it it you know kind of denies how damaging and awful it is. Um, and when people get really like, I don't know, especially like Marxists that are trying to incorporate radical ecology, people that aren't just stick, sticking with the Marxist canon and calling everyone else rad libs, like, you know, people that are trying to incorporate the frontiers of radical thought, forgive the expression, you do wrestle with this feeling like how, how good is a lot of this if we can never do collective appropriation and control it? if we never get to the stage where you you know like you just start to get frustrated and this thought at least becomes like a i don't know an understandable moral impulse if not like the best theoretical outlook yeah i mean it's you know what and what's i'm just gonna blame the french it's the proton to Kamat pipeline <laughs> you know uh you know they it's just uh it's just residual like petty bourgeois like reaction to the implications of uh collective industry uh, that's all it is. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> it is. No, I mean, there's a certain comfort. You know, that's very. Com- I, I'm. I feel much better actually. But, oh, thank yeah, you. No, you're welcome. Thank you. I mean, I, I mean, I do think you see it all the time. I've. We're talking about this before we started. Like, I see so many ways. Like, there's the many of the problems that plague the United States, and I think this also drives a lot of the sort of contemporary. What's left of what you can describe as like the pro- progressive left. You know, whatever that even means now. Uh, comes from just like looking at like different isolated solutions to social problems like developed by other capitalist countries and go like why can't we do that here like why can't we build the trains right and so so okay so i see all the time like ways that this system with a different slightly different balance of class forces or i don't know maybe less degenerated elites or something (laughs) could could undertake to reform itself um, and I think that there, and even at the deepest level, I think Ingalls is right. Like there is, 
you know, if you can overcome like the transition problem, you know, that there is a way that this system could be used to like reduce labor time and make like maybe it wouldn't be like necessarily utopia because like human beings, I don't think can ever fully be you know completely satisfied. But it would certainly look like one in comparison to what we're what we have now or what it looks like we're walking into. Um, and I still I still find that to be um, such an inspiring idea in spite of the you know in spite of the more you know doomer the doomer uh, sense that I get these days. No, for sure. But and I think a lot of people have a version of this thought in imagining that we could control our activity with the environment. That that's honestly like a version of this thought that people have. People that aren't completely black pilled and be like, well, it's just too late and we can't do anything. Like, because that that's you know verifiably is. Pro- like some of the propaganda that is put out <laughs> by it's not it's not just like good science that does that so like capitalism is really sophisticated its ideas are just any ideas right like some of the new propaganda is just climate doom like now nah, you can't do anything about this don't even try don't even fucking try what are you what are you stupid like um so i, I don't know from functional just from functional explanation brain it kind of makes sense that that would be a you know a pro pro capitalist thought even if it even if there's good science behind it because ideology doesn't care about truth it's it's just concerned with function right like so i do think it's just really important that we you know just have the possibility open that humanity could solve some really huge problems that are coming our way in the next generations it's it's not speculation. Like it's it's you know, come on. Like so a lot of people I think are grappling with this problem in a different way. Collective appropriation to us is obviously the only way that we could ever ever deal with this problem. <laughs> but you know, people are a little less settled on that. People just know that they don't they don't like they don't like the greenhouse gas charts and think, well, it would be really cool if someone did something. I can't. I can't wait. To, I mean, it's you know, some turbulence is definitely coming. I can't wait to meet Cisco in the Bell Riots. Oh man, Dr. Bashir. I I can't fucking wait. I'm gonna get me like I'm gonna get me like a a big ass hat, a big brim on it. I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be like I'm gonna be a street tough. I want <laughs> my hair out a little longer. I was kind of thinking of kind of you know breaking form and just saying fuck the timeline. Because I don't like this timeline anyway. And just go- yeah. going out full Starfleet regalia, get my ears pointed, yeah. and just throw Molotovs and just be like, just just be out there like fucking shit up. No, what you got to do is you got to like uh, use your math degree and then maybe like minor or double major in marine biology. Oh, yes. And like, try and figure <laughs> out what the whales. Yeah. Fi- you, we, need to, we need the wisdom of the whales now more than ever. Yeah. Yeah. Fucking Spock could talk to the whales. Yeah. So, like, Jesus Christ, you're right, Jake. I'm going yeah. to be the lady in that movie. Yeah. There you go. All right. So we're figuring things out today. Okay. Let's yeah. Keep going. Now that we've gotten my career path together, angles. Yep. Give us, give us more of your like bong rips on housing Yuck. and shit. Because so, let's, let's, let's. Let's just say that, like, whatever critiques I have, come on, you gotta, you gotta, by the end of that paragraph, you gotta appreciate where he's coming from. Okay, so he, we're back to, we're back to, um, Perdon. But all this is nothing to friend Perdon. He wants, quote, eternal justice and nothing else. 
Each shall receive in exchange for his product the full proceeds of his labor, the full value of his labor. But to reckon that out in a, in a product of modern industry is a complicated matter. For modern industry obscures the particular share of the individual in the total social product, which in the old individual handicraft was obviously represented by the finished product. Further, modern industry abolishes more and more the individual exchange on which Perdon's whole system is built up, namely direct exchange between two producers, each of whom takes a product of the other in order to consume it. Consequently, a reactionary character runs throughout the whole of Proudhonism, an aversion to the Industrial Revolution and the desire, sometimes overtly, sometimes covertly expressed, to drive the whole of modern industry out of the temple, steam engines, mechanical looms, and the rest of the swindle, and return to the old, respectable, hard labor. Hand that labor. We would th- a hand, so, <laughs> and, sorry, hard, yeah. Um, that we would then lose 999 thousandths of our productive labor, and the whole of humanity would be condemned to the worst possible labor slavery. That starvation would become the general rule. What does all that matter if only we succeed in organizing exchange in such a fashion that each receives, quote, the full proceeds of his labor, end quote, and that eternal, quote, eternal justice is realized, fiat justicia periat mundus? <laughs> um, justice must prevail, though the whole world must, though the whole world perish. And the world would perish in this predominant counter-revolution if it were at all possible to carry it out. This is a not the most charitable read, but it is moreover self-evident that with social production conditioned by modern large-scale industry, it is possible to assure each person the, quote, full proceeds of his labor, end quote, so far as this phrase has any meaning at all. And it has a meaning only if it is extended to mean not that each individual worker becomes the possessor of, quote, the full proceeds of his labor, end quote, uh, but that the whole of society, consisting entirely of workers, becomes the possessor of the total proceeds of its labor, which it partly distributes amongst its members for consumption, partly for replacing increasing the needs of production, and partly stores up as a reserve fund for production and consumption. So there's some Lasallian axe grinding here as well. And, okay. Yeah, I mean, there's a shitpost element of this text where he's, like, just totally savaging them. He's basically going green scare, like, in a way, like, oh... Oh, okay. You you think you know the for- the forces of production of capitalism aren't like totally great? Well, you just want to fucking starve everybody, you fucking primo. Like this is the uh, origin of some ultra left book beef where uh, people's in a sociopathic ultra left forum called Embracing the Infantile uh, dro- drove out the you know published like endnotes communizers by by you know reading volume three. And literally hitting them with this argument, more or less, that you want fuck you, you want people to starve, like by by engaging with radical ecology, like that's that's what you want, <laughs> like which is you know I again if we're taking global warming seriously, like we, we gotta be a little more charitable than that, like. <laughs> Although wasn't there somebody once I forget somebody once said something that's like well hey if the work if if. Uh, people want to do poetry and they don't want to make bread. Then I guess we're doing poems today and not bread. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There, no, there is some crazy shit. There, are, there are, there is some crazy shit. There are some people saying things like that. Like there are also more coherent positions. And yeah, it, like just you know, if you're a scientific socialist or whatever, you gotta like try to integrate economics and ecology as much as possible. Like because it's you know we're literally talking about resource management. Like there's no no fucking reason that we like tear those things apart other than like the sort of um i don't know the cultural inheritance of how we look at like the sciences uh, in an alienated way like if you're interdisciplinary about it like you and you're thinking about economics you might 
I don't know, especially if you're thinking about real estate, maybe by the coast, you know, you might want to think about climate change. Yeah. Um, okay. So he's going to, he's going to bring it back now to rent. There's a little more, there's a little more stuff on predominant. Okay. After what has been said above, we already know in advance how our predominant will solve the great housing question. On the one hand, we have the demand that each worker own his own home in order that we may not remain, quote, below the savages, end quote. On the other hand, we have the assurance that the two, three, five, or tenfold repayment of the original cost price of a house in the form of rent, as it actually takes place, is based on a, quote, legal title, and that this legal title is in contradiction to, quote, eternal justice. The solution is simple. We abolish the legal title and declare, in virtue of eternal justice, the rent paid to be a payment on account of the cost of the dwelling itself. If one has so arranged on premises that they already contain the conclusion in them, that of course it demands no greater skill than any charlatan possesses to produce the already prepared result from the bag and to point to unshakable logic whose result it is. And so it happens here. The abolition of rented dwellings proclaimed as a necessity and indeed in the form that the demand is put forward for the conversion of every tenant into the owner of his own dwelling. How are we to do that? Very simply, quote, rented dwellings will be redeemed. The previous house owner will be paid the value of W's house to the last farthing. Rent, instead of being as previously the tribute which the tenant must pay to the perpetual title of capital, will be, from the day when the the redemption of rented dwellings is proclaimed, the exactly fixed sum paid by the tenant to provide the annual installment for the payment of the dwelling which has passed into the possession of the tenant. Society transforms itself in this way into a totality of independent and free owners of dwellings, end quote. The Predonis finds it a crime against eternal justice that the house owner can, without working to obtain ground rent and interest out of the capital he's invested in the house. He decrees that this must cease, that capital invested in houses shall produce no interest, and so far as it represents purchased landed property, no ground rent either. We have already seen that the capitalist mode of production, the basis of present-day society, is in no way affected. The pivot on which the exploitation of the worker turns is the sale of labor power to the capitalist, and the use which the capitalist makes of this transaction, and that he compels the worker to produce far more than the paid value the labor power amounts to. It is this transaction between capitalist and worker which produces all the surplus value which is afterwards divided up in the form of ground rent, commercial profit, interest on capital, taxes, etc., among the various subspecies of capitalists and their servants. And now our Prudonis comes along and believes that if we are able to forbid each single subspecies of capitalists, and at that of such capitalists who purchase labor, no labor power directly and therefore also cause no surplus value to be produced to receive a profit or interest, it would be a step forward. The mass of unpaid labor taken from the working class would remain exactly the same even if house owners were to be deprived tomorrow of the possibility of receiving ground rate and interest. However, this does not prevent our Prudonis from declaring, quote, the abolition of rent dwellings is thus one of the most fruitful and magnificent efforts which has ever sprung from the womb of the revolutionary idea and it must become one of the primary demands of social democracy, end quote. This is exactly the type of market cry of the master Proudhon himself, whose cackling was always in inverse ratio to the size of the eggs laid. <laughs> do we not think that the abolition of rent dwellings is not a... Is, like, what do, we, what do we think about this? Like, Well, it, I mean, the thing is, on some level, he's right. Like, you, if you got rid of rent, like, you, would, you could still have a capitalist... Like, sure. Uh, I think, yeah, they, like... Like Singapore, like ninety, like ninety percent home ownership. You know what I mean? Like it's still, it's, it's yeah, 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 yeah. capitalist no, society. No, 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 that's true. That's absolutely true. Um, so yeah, I mean he's right. Like it, it, that's not where the primary exploitation takes place. But like it must become one of the primary demands of social democracy. Like 
Mm-hmm. The, the the Bolsheviks like fucking outflanked the left uh, the, the outflanked all the social revolutionaries the left social revolutionaries at least the ones that actually went along with the October Revolution right like they totally like just fucking fleeced their program like they just took their their program it was one, it was one of the biggest strategic genius things that they did in their situation in in the place where Marxist revolution was actually on the table in the twentieth century like. It just kind of cuts against this. Throughout this, like Ingalls is basically saying that the solution to the housing question is to abolish like the capitalist mode of production. And I think that one thing that has developed since then is that we have seen societies that have remained capitalist, but have more or less reduced the housing question to a pretty minuscule thing and have like insanely high, kind of almost what Perdon would have wanted, like insanely high rates of homeownership. Um, even if that homeownership is like, say, like owning a condo in like a super, uh, super large like housing complex, right? Um, like places have been able to do that and still remain capitalist, and there's still uh, surplus value, surplus labor uh, value extraction taking place. So it yes, there is there is a way to like settle this within capitalism, but at the time, it was not possible within the political configuration of liberal capitalism that existed in United States and Western Europe at the time that Ingalls was writing. It seems like what has happened since then is that you're more likely to either get that in maybe a situation of Western Europe was able to get that to a certain extent when trade unionism was able to secure the bag by being on the right side of the Cold War, um, or you get it maybe in contexts of national development where the bourgeoisie is weak and so the state is able to step in and do social planning in terms of real estate in ways that you don't get so much in maybe a more liberal cap- liberal form of capitalism where the inmates are running the asylum, right? And so that is one of the and ways where he's kind of he's kind of born out to be right, but he's 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 right in this particular context in that you would basically need a political you need a social revolution of the bourgeoisie against the proletariat the proletariat against the bourgeoisie because the bourgeoisie in this time period and in this place had zero interest in actually addressing the problem of the housing question but yeah he was also right that it can be it can technically be addressed within capitalism um to an extent yeah uh, look angles isn't like without point it's just that uh you know this this does turn out to be one of the bigger like it does turn out to be like something like a plank in the successful revolutions of the 20th century being able to carry out like land reform and like mm-hmm. do you know i'm not saying it was always successful <laughs> yeah but it, you know it was one of the things that meant that all, there was a whole working population that was down for the revolution that wouldn't have been otherwise like right. in, in in you know the wave of real revolutions <laughs> so I, so on the one hand like a lot of his rationale makes sense but you know at the, i don't know it's just just the last point Right. Well, he 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 conceptualized again like it was the fixation on urbanity. He you know, saw like urbanization and that was produced by the model of industrialization of the time period as being the thing that produces the proletariat as this political actor. And every revolutionary uprising that he was a part of or observed in his lifetime was centered around like these urban uprisings. But in the 20th century, you get this reversal where so much of it becomes a part of based in the periphery and in these different worker-peasant alliance that existed. Breathe in. Breathe out.
Just take a moment. Clear your mind. And uh, just be present in this moment that you're sitting in right now. If it helps, just picture picture yourself sitting on a, a latticed folding chair with a little cup holder on the side and a cool beer inside a beer koozie overlooking a twilight swamp in the Everglades of Florida contemplating the finer things the all the stuff we talk about here <laughs> um, okay so we're going to do two more parts of this next episode of this series we will finish reading through the entirety of part one after that we will read selections from the subsequent two parts and try and wrap that up in one episode we've got some more stuff coming up we're going to talk a little bit more about the anti-work stuff and the nature of workers sharing their experiences of work through the medium of the internet and how that kind of shakes out. Uh, we're going to eventually talk about a listener request of the book and novel Hard to Be a God. And there's a few more requests and a few more things that we have uh, coming your way. We appreciate your patience. And, uh, yeah, if you want to support the show, check, hit up our Patreon. If you want to get a hold of us, contact us at swampsidechats at gmail.com or through social media or through Discord. Uh, yeah, and that's it. So, until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.